But let's start off our message today by, by reading this passage. All right? Here's what it says. Philippians 3, 17. Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Now, I wish I could say that it's extremely rare that highly visible Christians melt down and lose their way. I wish that's what I could stand here to tell you today. I I wish that I could say that it never happens to people that serve in pastoral ministry or, or other ministry roles. But sadly, as we know, it's a common occurrence. It it pops up all the time. You hear of these big ministries and organizations, and sometimes they've been around for decades, that all collapse because of some sort of financial impropriety or uh, adultery or some other sort of crazy, scandalous thing. I've been called a pastor for over 20 years now, and when I think about the past 20 years and all of the well-known Christian authors and pastors and leaders and worship leaders and others that have fallen in moral failure, have denounced their faith and walked away from the church, it's discouraging. It wouldn't take me very long to go to a bookshelf full of books of people that I've read in the past. You're like, oh, wow, they've got so many great things to say about God. They've really got it all figured out, how to lead churches or whatever. Or, or, or pastors that you, you, you see with the, the big visible ministries and you watch their YouTube channel and you see the messages and you're like, whoa, these people are powerful speakers. And, and, and then you hear of some horrible thing that, that's happened there. And it's not just the high profile Christians that fall on their faces. It's low profile ones that you never hear about that, that are maybe from a local church. People that maybe you went to church with for a long time and all of a sudden it's like, wow, that family split and and this guy ran off with that woman and that woman ran off with this man and all this this stuff that, that happens. I wish that wasn't the case. But when I read the scripture, like we did here today, when I read the Bible, I, I realize and I'm reminded that it's nothing new. It's not an American problem that we have. It's not a modern cultural problem that we have. It's a human problem. It's a sin problem, and it's a problem that's been around even back before the Bible was written. And just because it's common, though, doesn't mean that it's inevitable. It doesn't mean because we see people make a mess of their lives that we are forced to then therefore go and make a mess of our lives. 
It doesn't mean that because we have some of these highly visible ones that pop up here and there, it doesn't mean that everyone is that way. It feels that way sometimes, especially when they're the most visible ones. But that's not, that's not the way it is. We're not doomed to repeat the same things that we've seen in other people. And here in this text, Paul encourages us to keep our eyes on those who stay on the path, not on those who have left the path. Did you, did you see that? Um, he, says it, he says it there. Um, and he tells us there in verse 17, imitate me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. But here's the problem with people. People love scandals. We love the, 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 the bad stuff that happens as long as it's not happening to us. If it's happening to somebody else, it's very interesting. They love, we love scandals, especially unexpected scandals. Christian leaders are expected to live to a high moral standard. 1 Timothy 3 says that, that people that are in leadership at a church are supposed to live above reproach. That means you're supposed to be able to look at them and say, hey, I, I want to get into your business. And you're supposed to be able to get into the business of those leaders. And it's supposed to be above reproach. Now, we know that all people are, are fallen and fallible. And it doesn't mean they're perfect. But they're supposed to be living uh, to a, a high moral standard. And the thing is, believers and non-believers, even non-Christians, they know that. They know that Christian leaders claim this moral high road and that they're supposed to follow a moral high road. And so when they see something that doesn't work that way, when they see it, it becomes scandalous and newsworthy. We're seeing it right now with the news. If you've been paying attention to this, there's this condemning report out regarding the leadership of the Southern Baptist Convention that's new in the news this week. And it's all this garbage Stuff that does not belong up there. And is it real and is it true? Yeah, it is. And it's not supposed to be that, that way. Before that, a few weeks ago, Hillsong Church. Another huge church with a far, far-stretching ministry. We see these things eroding and, and all these things that don't belong. But what Paul says here is he says, look, I understand that stuff's going to happen. It's going to pop up and you're going to want to just focus on that. You're going to want to be discouraged by it. You're going to want to look at it and just say, oh, the world's falling apart. The church is falling apart. It's all fake. It's all hypocrisy. But he says, no, that's not what you're to do. Instead, he says, look to those that are on the path, not those that have gotten off the path. And, and it's God's desire for us his desire for us is that we would stand firm in him. That's what we're going to see in this passage. It's not that you should raise up and get some incredible, you know, far-reaching influence and then blow it. That's not what, what he's calling us to. He wants us to live lives that are firm in him all the way to the end. All the way to the end. But he starts there in verse 17 with this pretty bold statement. What does Paul say there? He says something that I wouldn't be brave enough to say. He says, hey, everybody, imitate me. I want you to live like I do. Okay, that's that's pretty, pretty heavy to say that. And it might seem kind of like Paul's just being arrogant, but I don't think it's arrogance. It's actually just confidence. And it's not confidence in his own strength. The verses before that that we looked at in the last couple of weeks have, have, have shown us that. It's not confidence in his own strength, but it's confidence in the example he was following, the example of Jesus. He says it even more clearly in 1 Corinthians 10, 31 
says this. It says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. And listen, what he says here in 11.1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. The reason he tells the church at Philippi, hey, I want you to imitate me, isn't because, hey, I'm so great. What he says is imitate me because I'm imitating Christ. And this is, I'm still walking. I'm still here. I haven't fallen into this and into that. I haven't turned my back on God. I haven't been, you know, secretly living this way and acting like I'm doing this way. So imitate me, but imitate me as I imitate Christ. And that's consistent with what he's, he was writing back in, in verse 14, a few verses earlier that we didn't read this morning, when he talked about pressing on toward the goal for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And, and the thing about this is, is that these pitfalls, these dangers, these things that we see people blow their lives up over, they're always going to exist. Human beings have the same set of temptations that they've always had. We have the same sort of things that we're drawn towards. We have the same tweaked brains that pursue things that we know we shouldn't. It's part of being human. But if we can keep our eyes on Jesus, he can lead us through them all. I, I think in, there's a, a pretty good illustration of this um, in the Gospel of Matthew, and it's pretty well known. It's when Peter walks on water. Most of you have probably heard that story, right? About when Peter, the Apostle Peter, walks on, on the water out to Jesus. Uh, back in Matthew, it tells us that the, the disciples had been out with Jesus. They'd been ministering, been a full day. Everybody was exhausted. The, the disciples are starting to get a little grouchy. And so Jesus says, you know what? You guys go ahead on without me. Get back in the boat, cross the Sea of Galilee. I'll catch up with you later. So the disciples head out. They're in the middle of the boat. It's nighttime, dark at this point. And as they're sitting out there floating across the Sea of Galilee, they see through the moonlight an image, a person walking across the water. As you can imagine, that caused them to freak out. So they're in the boat, they're freaking out because there's this person walking on water. People don't walk on water. Something's wrong. What's happening here? Is this a ghost? But as the, the figure gets closer, they, they realize it's Jesus because he, he says out to them, hey, guys, don't freak out. Don't be afraid, it's just me. And so they're all staring at the figure of Jesus coming across the water and they're trying to process this as you would be. If you, you know, saw some dead relative or something that appears at your house, you're like, okay, something's wrong. I've eaten bad food. There's a projector in this room. Like, how is this happening? What's happening? This is what they're thinking about, right? It's all going through their brains. And he starts, as Jesus gets closer, Peter and the rest of the disciples, they're focused on Jesus. They're looking at Jesus. They're concentrating on, on him. And in Matthew 14, verse 28, it says this, And Peter answered him, after he said, stay calm, guys, it's me. Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat. And walked on the water and came to Jesus. But notice what happens next. In verse 30. But when he saw the wind, 
He saw the, the things going on around him. He saw the waves. He saw that he's standing in water. It's dark outside. The boat's over there. He's over here. When he sees all of this happening, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? My point of that is this. When, when Peter kept his eyes on Jesus... Things were going the way they were supposed to go. Miraculously, admittedly, but they were, he was walking on water. He was standing on the lake, on top of the lake with Jesus. But when his eyes got off of Jesus, he began to sink. And, and I, I do, I admit it, I get discouraged and disappointed when I see someone misrepresenting Jesus. I, I, when I see someone who has served in the role of a pastor mistreating or abusing or exploiting the people he's supposed to care for and lead. That's what his job is. That's discouraging to me. But that's not where I'm supposed to keep my eyes. I can stay focused on, here's the 82 ways that pastors this year failed their congregations. And there's, there's articles for me to read. There's books for me to read about it. I could go on blog posts and see social media posts. I could, I could hear all of the noise. I could just, I could just fixate on that. But that's not where I'm supposed to keep my eyes. Instead, we're supposed to recognize the danger, but get closer to Jesus. And in verse 18, this is what he tells us. He says, For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Many, he says, of those that he had talked about to the church as examples of people in the faith. That's what is, is being inferred there. They were no longer walking with God. Instead, he says, they've become enemies of Jesus. Now, we know that Judas was the very first one to betray Jesus, but he was far from the last. It's not a new thing. It's going to continue. As long as sin is in the world, people are going to reject God, and they are going to even betray the Jesus that they know. And it's discouraging to watch people fall away from the Lord. And it's heartbreaking, especially when you consider what their outcome is. But before we look at that, I, I do want to say this, and I want you to notice this. We have to recognize that, that there's a difference between those that some stumble and fall into sin and those that reject God and turn away. All right, there's a difference. All of us are people all of us have fallen sinful natures that are hopefully being renewed and transformed by God. But all of us are, have the potential and the ability to fall into sin, to stumble into sin. But there's a difference between people that stumble and get back up, people that fall down and repent and move forward, versus those that fall into sin and just say, I want nothing to do with that God thing. This sin is great. This is where I'm going. This is how I'm going to live my life. There's two different things, two different places there. And throughout scripture, we see examples of people who love God and follow God, but make terrible sinful choices. Some of the most famous people in the Bible are people like that. King David is the first one that comes to mind. King David, a man after God's own heart, committed adultery and murder. This wasn't before he knew God. He was the king. He had been walking with God. And he, he committed adultery and murder. Aaron, the brother of Moses, led Israel into idolatry with the golden calf. 
This is after they're out of Egypt. This is when they're headed toward the promised land. Solomon turning from God to serve the idols that all of his many, 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 many wives were worshiping. Turning to idolatry after God had spoken to him multiple times. All right, and the list goes on. But the difference is there's always room for repentance for those that have blown it and have fallen, but there's room for them to repent. And repentance, we know, doesn't always eliminate the consequences of the sin, but it does allow God to restore our relationship with him. Those aren't the people that Paul's talking about here. When he says those people are the enemies of the cross of Christ, he's not talking about well-meaning Christians that blow it. Okay? And so if you feel like today that your week did not go as well as you thought your week might go, that you said or did or thought some things that were not fitting for a Christian, maybe it was straight out blatant sin that you committed this week. When he talks about those that are headed to destruction, that are enemies of the cross of Christ, that's probably not you. Okay? But there are people that that is the path that they are on. And he describes that those that reject God and choose to become enemies of the cross of Christ are headed for destruction. Verse 19, that's exactly what it says. Their end is destruction. And he goes on there and he says, and their God is their belly, their own selves, their own desires, their own passions and wants. It's not the God of all things. It's they've become their own God. They glory in their shame And their minds are set on earthly things. In in the Old Testament, way back in in, uh, Genesis chapter 25, we we learn the story about Jacob and Esau. Okay, Jacob and Esau were were twins. um, Twins from Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac was the promised child of Abraham and Sarah after they were in their old age and they had Isaac. Well, when Isaac grew up, he married Rebekah. And they had two twins, Jacob and Esau. And they were twins from a really a dysfunctional family. And the reason I say they were a dysfunctional family is because Isaac had his favorite son and Rebekah had her favorite son. And they weren't the same. They were actually one of each. All right. And can, the, the tension that comes into the family because of that plays out through the, the scripture in front of us. Okay, and, and of the two boys, Esau was the older one. Now, he wasn't much older. In fact, the Bible tells us that Jacob, in scrapping, trying to get him his way out first, was actually holding on to Esau's ankle as they were born. All right, so it's one right after, after another. It's not like one was born, a lot of times twins are born a few minutes apart. Not with these guys. One's already grabbing onto the other one. They're already in a battle, right? And Esau, the older one, was, was an outdoorsman. He was a hunter. He liked to be outdoors and out in the field and doing all the things that are outdoorsy stuff. And he was the favorite of his father. He's like, yeah, he's my man's man. And we like to go out and do stuff and hunt things. And this is, this is who we are. All right. Jacob, the twin brother, was very different. He didn't want any of that stuff. It's, it tells us he was a man of tents. He liked to be, he was quiet and he liked to stay inside and cook. And that's who he was. And so mom was like, this is awesome. I've got somebody who's going to cook and do these kinds of things and be in here with me. And so that was Rebecca's favorite, was Jacob. And one day, it tells us in Genesis 25, you may know this story, Esau's out 
in the outdoors doing what he does. He comes home after a long day of hunting, whatever. He's exhausted. He's tired, but he's really, really hungry. And he comes into the tent where they're at, you know, and he smells this food coming, the smell of, of food, something good. And he's thinking, oh, Jacob is working on his masterpiece. And he's starving. And he comes into the tent, he busts in, and he's like, Jacob, feed me. What have you got? And Jacob's like, oh, you don't even know. The thing I've got here today, this is the ultimate. I've made this stew and I've been perfecting this thing for years. It is as good as it gets. And I've tasted this one and this is the best of all. And Esau is like, yes, that's what I need. Please, I need it now. And Jacob's like, ah, I'm not sure. And Esau's like, anything, I'll give you anything. Like I've got to eat right now. I'm going to die on the floor in front of you. Feed me. And Jacob comes up with his being a little conniving, scamming kind of guy that he is, and you see that all through the Bible, <laughs> Jacob's like, okay, I got a deal for you here. What I'll do is I'll give you all you can eat today. And I've got plenty back here and it's good. I'll give you what you want, but let's just, let's do a little transaction here. Let me have your birthright. Remember, I was just a few seconds behind you holding on to your heel anyway. What's the big deal? Well, in, in our cultures where a lot of times families kind of spread out their inheritance and their wealth equally to their kids, that's not how it worked back then. And the oldest always got the biggest portion. That's the way it worked. And so the birthright was the right to the inheritance. And, and so in this situation, what's happening here, Jacob is saying, I want to be in first place here. I want to get what's coming to you. I want that to come to me. You can have my part, but I want what's coming to you. And Esau, being the, the, the person that we're focused on here, Esau, being so hungry with the God of the belly, <laughs> worrying about today and right now and this minute, he says, sure, take it. I don't care. Just give me that food and give it to me now. And, and I think that that is exactly how people throw away heaven for earth. They want the instant gratification. They want it fixed right now. They want what I feel, what I want, what I need. I can see it and I can taste it. I can touch it right now. So give me that. I don't care what it costs me. But they ultimately can throw away heaven for earth. They choose to satisfy their desires right now and sacrifice the things that are eternal. And here's the thing about sin. Sin damages us. I tell you all the time that, that sin damages our relationship is anything that damages our relationship with God or with other people. That's the definition of what sin is. All right, but not only does it do that, sin damages us. Sin mangles our souls. 1 Timothy 4, 1 to 2 says this in describing some people that this has happened to them already. It says, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars, listen, whose consciences are seared. It's been burned. Their conscience, their moral code, their ability to tell right from wrong, to know the difference of how they should live and how they shouldn't. It's been, it's been burned in such a way that it's just seared. It doesn't function anymore. 
a lifetime of sin has mangled their soul. Romans 1, 18 to 25 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But, listen, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the mortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This is what we see happen all around us all the time. This is what we're seeing in our society. This is what poisons an 18-year-old to show up to an elementary school and kill people. This is a heart that is darkened and perverted and twisted. This is sin pouring in and gushing in day after day, year after year to get to a place of hopelessness and darkness that cannot be satisfied. And sadly, without a perspective that goes beyond this life and what's right here, right now, right in front of me, the most that somebody can have is always going to be temporary. And that's why it feels very hopeless. Have you ever talked to a really happy atheist? I haven't. Not when you talk about serious things. Because when you talk to them about it, if they're like, well, there is no God, this is it. I might get 50, 60, 80 years, but then that's it. And pretty soon they're like, even if it's 80 years, that's worthless. And they move into nihilism because it's all going, it's all going to burn. We're just these organisms that come and go. So who cares? What matters? It's darkness. But what the Bible tells us is those people are headed for judgment and destruction. That's why Jesus said in Mark 8, 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. We are not temporary people. We have eternal souls that God has given us. And we've been given this vision to look forward. Now in verses 20 and 21, that's exactly where Paul goes with it. He goes forward. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Now, here's what you got to know about Philippi, the city that this letter was written to. Philippi was a Roman colony. Now, at the very beginning of this study, we talked about where Philippi is on the map. You can go there today and still see the ruins of the first century Philippi. It's in Greece. But Philippi was one of the cities that was actually a Roman colony. Now, that may not mean a whole lot to us, but it meant a lot to them. It was actually a very big deal in the first century if you were part of the Roman Empire and that your city was a colony. Because if you were a colony of the Roman Empire, that means you had Roman citizenship. 
Okay, and just because you had been absorbed by Rome and the Roman Empire did not mean that you became a colony. Israel was occupied by, by Caesar, right? Jesus was crucified on a cross by a Roman leader. But Israel was not, uh, J- Jerusalem was not a colony of Rome. So the people born and raised in Jerusalem were not automatically Roman citizens. Philippi was. So their citizenship gave them rights and privileges that everybody else in the world that wasn't a Roman citizen didn't have. So it was a really big deal. There were a lot of protections and benefits that others through the empire could not enjoy, but a Roman citizen could. And so when Paul starts talking about the citizenship here, this meant a lot to them. Back in in early the Roman Empire, a person could either be born a citizen, you could purchase it at a great expense, or it could be granted to you by a general or the emperor. That's the ways that you could become a citizen. That was it. And so for most people, they would never have a chance at any of that. But this idea of, of heavenly citizenship would have carried a powerful context then for these Philippians. When he starts saying, look, you know all the privileges that you have because you're Roman citizens? Well, you're actually, as Christians, you become citizens of heaven. And as citizens of heaven, there's a lot of things that are offered to you, benefits that come to you that do not come to those that have rejected it. We, uh, I think even in the United States, a lot of times we take our citizenship for granted. We, we forget about what it costs uh, in, in, in lives to establish a nation and to protect this nation. A true citizen feels a loyalty and an obligation and a responsibility to the nation that they're a part of. And for these Philippians, when he describes it this way, it would have been a realization of the privilege and the honor and the glory associated with being citizens of heaven. And so it was a call beyond, beyond just ordinary humanity. It's a reminder that we're called to something that's new and something that's glorious, something that's lasting and eternal. That's hard to see a lot of times when we look around at the things going on around us. When we read the news, when we hear bad news, when we see what's happening with friends and family, when we see people that are sick and suffering, we see hunger and we see the issues that are happening all around our world in so many different ways. It's hard to keep our eyes up there. But what does he say? He says, look, it's glorious. It's lasting. It's eternal. And we're going to be transformed by God's power. We're not just citizens of the earth, but we're the people of God. We're citizens of heaven. And so then the last statement that he makes there in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, therefore... Because that's all happening, because we're citizens there, because we're, being, we're going to be transformed. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Paul challenges us to stand firm in who we are in Jesus. We're citizens of the world to come. Now, the people that we started out talking with, uh, talking about, I started talking with you about um, at the beginning of this message, those people that are falling, they didn't stand firm. They fell away in all sorts of different ways. But we're challenged to not do that, but to stand firm. What, is, what does that even mean? What's that, what do you think of when you think of standing firm? I think of surfing. I think of surfing a lot. Okay. But I think of surfing, I think of a, a stance. 
You can go paddle out at, at your local beach and you'll very quickly, even before anybody's ridden a, a, a wave very far, you'll be able to know pretty quickly whether or not this person knows what they're doing. Simply by the way they're trying to stand on their surfboard. All right, there's, there's a balance and an athleticism that happens standing on a surfboard and then there's all these other things that are happening on the surfboards. And, and the reason that you need to have a good stance is for that balance, for that control. Surfers talk about speed, power, and flow. That's how professional surfing is, is graded. And, and, and if your feet are too close together, you, you can lose your balance. You don't have the power. If your feet are too far apart, you look awkward and you lose balance and you, you fall apart. There's a, a stance that's just right, that has just the right amount of balance the way it has to be. It's the same thing in wrestling or grappling, right? You, your firm foundation matters if you want to stay with a firm footing. And what Paul is calling us to here when he says stand firm in the Lord, he's saying you've got to position yourself in a way that's prepared for the things that life will come at us with. Because life is going to send hard things your way. That's part of living life, guys. And he says that if you've got your balance and if you're, you're prepared for what's going to come at you, you can handle the things that come uh, as life goes on. And it's a way of life. It's not just a split-second reaction. He says this is how you have to live. You have to live in a way that's constantly standing firm. So this morning as we, we end toward, uh, head toward the end here, I've got three ways, three things that I think will help us stand firm. All right, And the first of those three things is I think we're called to learn well. To learn well. What do I mean by that? I mean we as Christians, if we want to stand firm, if we want to learn well, we need to study God. We need to study what God has revealed to us about himself, about ourselves. Where do we find that? The Bible is one of the primary places to do that. We need to study God's word. We need to ask hard questions from God's word. But not only do we need to study the word, we also need to study the world. We need to look around at what people are doing in their lives and how their lives are unfolding. We need to be aware of our surroundings. We need to study those things too. And by the way, guys, God can handle all of your questions. Every one of them. The hard questions, the the un unthinkable questions. God can handle all of them. A lot of times right now as we look around at the world, we, we ask some of those hard questions or we even see the, the, the moral questions being offered in our society, right? Questions about uh, abortion or, or, or violence or sexual identity. All these questions are being asked. God has answers for all these things. It's, it's, it's not too big for him and we should know we should learn well. We should understand what, what God has to say about those things. And not only that, we also learn um, as we study the word, we study the world, but we also listen to the testimonies of people that have gone before us on the path. That's just wisdom. That's a good way to learn, to learn from one another, to be able to see how God has been faithful in other people's lives, that we can aim our life in the same way. That's where Paul says, imitate me. I'm imitating Christ, so imitate me. We're called to seek wisdom, all right? So the first thing we do is we learn well. Secondly, I think that we're also to build well. This is what I mean by that. Life is lived one day at a time. I'm sure you've probably heard that before. But it's also lived one decision at a time. 
And every little decision that you make, they, they add up to shape who we are and aim us toward who we're becoming. That's how we live. And, and it, we're building our life a moment at a time, a decision at a time, a day at a time. And we want to try to frame our lives in a way that supports the truth and strengthens our footing. How we're building our lives really matters. Building well is taking what we've learned and then applying it to our lives day after day after day. Back in James, we, we learned to not only be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. You can have all the information, you can have learned it all, but if you don't put it into practice, it's not going to do any, any good. And that's where the, the falling apart stuff happens with the, these people that, that have these major, major um, issues that fall apart. It depends, it's, it, it doesn't usually just happen overnight. These guys don't blow up their lives off just one split-second decision that came at them from nowhere. It's all these little decisions that have eroded the moral fabric of who they are until eventually the whole thing melts down. The last of those three things, we learn well, we build well, and then we live well. Those that Paul was brokenhearted over were those that were headed towards destruction. And destruction is not the abundant life that Jesus came to give us. We're called to be people of life, people that are living well in, in the way that we function, in the way that we interact with the world around us. And one of the primary ways that we live out abundant life is in community. That's part of the way that you live well. You, 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 you choose the community that you're a part of and you pour into a community that you're part of. We talk that, about that around here a lot, right? Vibrant Christian community, one of our goals. That provides a, a much needed support and outlet for the overflowing life. That's why we encourage you to be involved in life groups and come to church on, on a weekly basis. It's part of the plan for strength and stability. And, and the Bible describes us as citizens of a new community, but also new members of a family, of even a body. And that's very different than the individual, individual view that we have adopted in our world. And we need to have that perspective where we're caring for one another in the church as well as for those outside of the church. We're, we're communal people. It's how we are. We, we want to be in community. And there are lots of even good communities that we can invest ourselves in, right? It could be youth sports. It can be civic stuff, uh, school programs, neighborhood communities, shared interest groups, clubs. There are lots of options. What we don't need, we don't need more options of how to be living in community. What we need is we need focused intentions on what we're doing. If we want to live in a way that is leading us toward Christ, we need to be involved in something that's helping build that foundation underneath us. So as I finish here, and I'm finished, a couple questions for you. How can you personally grow and stand firm? When he says, you've got to get your feet under you. You've got to have that foundation. You need to be firm in your faith. That'll keep you from all, these other, all this other destruction. How can you do that? What do you need to focus on this week? Just look at those three things of, of learning well and building well and living well. Which one of those areas do you feel like that is where I could grow? That's what I need to focus on. Maybe you need to set aside some time to think deeply and study God and the world around you. Maybe you need to learn well. 
Maybe you need to just grow in obedience to the things you already know. That would be building well. Or maybe you need to lean into the community that you're a part of for the first time or renew your commitment to it. That's living well. So I just encourage you today as we look at this to take the next step. And as he says there, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Pray with me.